Alec Wolcott got so angry with me once at a party. He introduced me because he was the one who kind of started me again in show business, and he presented me as somebody at a party that should be interesting. And there I was, 19 years old. There wasn't anything interesting to say about me. I hadn't done anything in America. He says, well, Orson was born in Peking, and I said no. And a look of hatred came over Alex's face when I had told him it was Kenosha, Wisconsin. Instead of speaking, because it was the only interesting thing he could think of to say about <laughs> This is Monitor Al Capstaff steering the proceedings at the moment on this New Year's Day, 1956. Right now we're headed in the direction of the University of Chicago. For New World Today, our host on these weekly discussions has invited some experts on American manners and morals to join him. For at the beginning of the new year, what is more appropriate than to examine some of the changes that have come over American life in the years that have recently flown by? For the story, Monitor goes to Chicago and Professor Edward W. Rosenheim, Jr. On Sunday, January 1st, 1956, NBC's Monitor broadcast New World Today. 1956 was a presidential election year. At the time of this broadcast, Dwight Eisenhower, who'd had a heart attack in September, was still debating whether he would run for a second term. He'd decide in February, eventually winning re-election. After the censuring of Senator Joseph McCarthy in 1954, the Red Scare had subsided, overtaken by fear of communism in other parts of the world and general war with Russia. Meanwhile, in January of 1956, Orson Welles appeared with the New York City Center Theater Company, playing King Lear. He was finally home again. In February, he traveled to Las Vegas, where he performed a variety act at the Riviera Hotel. Wells was then contracted by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz to create a TV pilot for Desilu Productions. The short film was written and directed by Orson Welles, based on the short story, Youth from Vienna, by John Collier. Joy Lansing and Rick Jason star as a narcissistic couple faced with an irresistible temptation concocted by a scientist. Wells was the on-screen narrator. It was called The Fountain of Youth and considered a dark comedy. Desi Arnaz conceived the series, proposing to Wells that he host and narrate. Arnaz later wrote that before signing the deal, he clarified the finances with Wells. I am not RKO. This is my Babalu money. Filming took five days in early May. The total cost was nearly $55,000. Arnaz reported that CBS gave the series a slot with General Foods as a sponsor, but the challenges in getting Wells to commit to a series lasting more than 30 weeks were daunting. The series did not go to air. The pilot was later broadcast on September 16, 1958 during NBC's Colgate Theater. Well speaking, how would you like to stay just as young as you are, not to grow a day older for the next 200 years? Oh, I'm not plugging some new miracle cosmetic. The question is actually faced by the characters in our story, two men and a girl. The eternal triangle plus eternal youth equals a wacky little romance, which we'll bring you, if we may, in just a few seconds. 
hope you'll enjoy it. Back in the 20s, Dr. Humphrey Baxter was hailed as the discoverer of a scientific fountain of youth. But wait, let's start off with a girl in the case. Here she is. This, of course, is Caroline Coates, the world-famous actress. Well, actress is a word some of you may question, for she was not, strictly speaking, an actress at all. Caroline was simply one of those creatures who stands for something greater than talent, greater than beauty, and who is universally adored. A privileged few, of course, adored Carolyn at close range in, if you'll excuse the expression, in the flesh. One of these was Alan Brody, the tennis champion. Here he is. Now, science tells us that men of this type fall quickly and painlessly in and out of love. Others, like Dr. Baxter, here he is again, are men born for one passion only, at the most two, a passion for their job and for one woman. They never give up. Men of this type frequently devote themselves to science, and if they're interested in certain functions of the glands, this often takes them to Vienna. Wait a minute. We're getting uh, ahead of ourselves. Before going to Vienna, Humphrey Baxter spent an evening in New York. His friends, the Morgans, took him to the theater to see a show which was also very indirectly concerned with the glands. Humphrey leaned forward in his seat. The moment passed unnoticed because everyone else in the theater also leaned forward. Do you happen to know that girl, he asked his friends. Why, Humphrey, they said. How would people like us ever get to know anybody like Carolyn Coates? Humphrey realized that it needs only two or three introductions to bridge the gap between oneself and anyone anywhere in the world. So he asked everyone he knew, stating his purpose very clearly. And sure enough... Not long after that, there he was in fashionable Long Island, talking to Carolyn Coates. He found her amazingly ignorant of the immense importance of recent scientific research. And you can imagine the effect of this gaunt, gauche young man lecturing a popular idol of 23 on the ductless glands. Carolyn's smart friends were amused and then amazed, for she had fallen head over heels in love. Who are you calling, dear? Letty Popper. Who? We got the colonists. Hello, Letty. I want you to be the first to know we're getting married. Oh, wonderful, darling. Who is it? Baxter, the grand man. The grand man. Oh, bland. Well, Carrie, how nice for you. I think I've mentioned that the title of this rather crazy little love story is uh, The Fountain of Youth. Well, of course, there are all sorts of fountains. Some are beautiful, some are purely mythological, some are silly fountains. It was near a silly fountain that the mythological Narcissus was drowned. It was his own reflection he fell for, and he fell in. Of course, the silliest of all is The Fountain of Youth. Old Ponce de Leon thought that one was somewhere down in Florida. This was three centuries before the invention of Miami Beach. And he aged a whole lot looking for it, which is only human. Almost all of us wish we were just a little younger than we are. Ladies quite late in their 70s can be heard addressing each other as girls. Very rich old ladies, even rich old gents, have squandered fortunes on 
monkey glands, and I don't know what all, in the wistful hope of turning the clock back or at least slowing it up a bit. And this field, of course, was Humphrey's specialty. And by now, Humphrey really had to go back to Vienna to continue his researches with Vingelberg. Vingel who? Asked Caroline. Berg, said Humphrey. Berg. The Vingelberg, the greatest of all authorities on the ductless glands. Oh, said Caroline. Oh? And how long are you going to be away with us, Vingelberg, sweetie? Three years. Three years. On the other side... You see, I think any form of entertainment only exists because it corresponds to a moment in time, you know? So that, of course, there are actors who are as good or as remarkable or yes. as space-displacing or whatever, yes. however you want to describe a star. But the world doesn't think being a movie star is the everlasting end. And it no. used to, and that's, that's why they right. don't exist. That's right. That spring, the rock and roll era officially arrived. On April 6, 1956, Elvis Presley signed a three-film deal with Paramount Pictures. By the end of the month, his single Heartbreak Hotel rose to the top of the charts. It would remain there into June. Meanwhile, Orson Welles appeared as himself on October 15, 1956, in a very famous episode of I Love Lucy. Two days later, he was on the radio for a special one-off program adapting Philip Wiley's 1954 novel about post-nuclear civilization. It was called Tomorrow, and syndicated by ABC and the Federal Civil Defense Administration. This is the show close. They could have seen it from the planets. If there were eyes on Mars, they could have seen it without aid. In a split second, the Gulf of Finland evaporated. The dust and the debris of the enemy was flung to the Urals beyond. Some of the American cities came back. Green Prairie came back. Some, like River City, were abandoned scar tissue on the land. Speechless monuments to improvidence. They say half of the dead might have lived. They say half of the terribly maimed and burned might have been unscathed. They were told. They didn't listen. Sleep, my pretty one. Ruth Williams still believes that it is that perfect gem quality Saturday morning before Christmas. But the baby is in her arms. And the gem has just stepped out for a few cans of cold beer. And we'll presently be back. Tad is thinking of entering medical school. Wonder should he get married, though. Lenore already is married. Mrs. Charles Connor faces the aftermath of Armageddon, like the women who came to the River Abanakis in covered wagons. Dr. Lister says that a quarter of the babies by raid mothers don't quite make the grade. I'm afraid I caught some of the irradiation, Chuck. Yeah. Well, 75% is passing. Sure.
What, O oh Lord, against the fury of the sun and the cosmic technology of the ruthless and the despot availeth us the Kentucky rifle, the musket, and the naked faith and valor of our forefathers. What availeth that declaration which we fashioned for freedom in July 1776 and our lives' jeopardy? What availeth it these sacrifices and the sword of yesterday against the lightning of tomorrow? Civil Defense Administration is grateful to Orson Welles, Mona Freeman, and Marshall Thompson for contributing their services to this transcribed program. It also wishes to thank Philip Wiley for permission to dramatize his novel, Tomorrow, which was published in the hardback edition by Reinhardt and Company and in the softback edition by Popular Library. The radio adaptation was by Milton Geiger. Our director was William Carnes. Original music was composed and conducted by Albert Harris. Cornwell Jackson produced. Your announcer, James Wallington. The next month, on November 13, 1956, his daughter's first birthday, Wells appeared on NBC Radio's biography and sound, for his old mentor, Alexander Wolcott, who had passed away in 1943. I met Alec Wolcott through Thornton Wilder. He sent me with a letter. I went to New York to uh, Alex's apartment, and a day later he had bamboozled and generally forced poor Miss Catherine Cornell into signing me up, and thus I went back into the theater, and that's how I met him. If he was a snob, he was an amiable and genial snob. He liked to be in the company of success, and if the people he loved weren't success, he very soon saw to it that they belonged to the successful world. He's been greatly libeled, I think, in a lot that's been written about him uh, since his death. I think one of the biggest libels is to leave it that he was an egomaniac. Well, anybody who is... Uh, functions as he did has to be interested in himself but he was so immensely interested in everybody else and that's the capacity of his which doesn't come through in a book I'm thinking of and in a few semi-obituary remarks because he really was tremendously taken up with the world and his friends in it